This episode contains themes relating to child sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Poddo. Now, if you'll only attend, Kitty, and not talk so much, I'll tell you all my ideas about Looking Glass House. If you were to peer through the lace curtains of houses in Charlton Kings, what would you see? This is a sleepy neighbourhood in Cheltenham, where respectable people go about their respectable lives. Nothing dark or dangerous here. Down one street you'd find a house called Hetton Lawn. It was here, just over 150 years ago, that a remarkable and controversial piece of literary history occurred. A mathematician, the Reverend Charles Lutwidge Dodgson, came to Cheltenham to stay with Dr Henry Liddell, Dean of Christchurch College in Oxford. There, Dodgson stoked the fire of his friendship with Adele's 11-year-old granddaughter, Alice. And in that house in Charlton Kings hung a huge, ornate mirror. A mirror that is said to have inspired one of literature's most disorientating inventions. I know that, because I have held up one of our books to the class, and then they hold up one in the other room. For Dodgson, better known by his pen name Lewis Carroll, the world was going to be turned upside down. But in Cheltenham, that's not an unheard of experience. It's time to go through the looking glass. This is the town that knew too much. I'm Nick Hilton. Was Lewis Carroll a paedophile? This is the sort of question that would have earned me a disapproving frown from my tutor when I was a naive English student. I once wrote an entire undergraduate essay on Andrew Marvell's nymph poems through the prism of his having been a repressed paedophile, an idea that made disturbing sense in my head but which faltered under the penetrative gaze of having to be publicly justified. And this is part of the reason why digging into the personal histories of long-dead public figures is such a thankless task. For all the hints, there's rarely evidence. You can't whip open a door and catch a 17th century metaphysical poet in the act. And so, was Lewis Carroll a paedophile would generally be considered a reductive question. Literary scholarship would call it unnecessary, and the etiquette of polite British society call it invasive. But I'm asking it anyway. Yeah, and I don't want to deny that there's a creepiness to the his fixation or a disturbing element or a even a sexualized element. I wouldn't really deny that. I somehow don't think he acted on it. That's the voice of Katie Royf, a journalist and writer whose novel Still She Haunts Me recreates the relationship between Carol and Alice Liddell. It's not my feeling having immersed myself in him that he did, but I do think there's something when we look at it now, and obviously even maybe for some people looking at it then, there's something about this obsession that is not quite right, that we would not want our daughters to have this like young man like lingering around them the way he was lingering around Alice. It's undeniable that there's an element. It's just that our words... I think because of how much probably went unexpressed, unspoken, maybe even to himself, it's hard to bring our sort of like pornography soaked world into this world, you know, where, you know, I think that the unacted on and or the sort of thought about or repressed and kind of pushed away thoughts and fantasies, 
I think it was something was a struggle for him and he lived in that struggle. And, you know, maybe the word pedophile kind of, it obviously is not irrelevant to the case. I just, I think it's hard to bring our, our time period and all of its way of looking at things and interpreting things back to that time period. Well, I mean, I, I just don't think it was possible for it to be improper. That's the voice of Jenny Wolfe, author of The Mystery of Lewis Carroll. Apart from anything else, I mean, even if he'd wanted it to be, and it, there's no indication that he did, because of the, the whole social setup at the time, their mother's entire role in life was for her daughters. You know, the thing that she had to do for her daughters was make sure that they were marriageable. Victorian young ladies of that class, once they passed the age of about 14, weren't supposed to even spend any time with men at all. It just doesn't seem feasible, you know. I mean, there's no, I, I don't know how you would have got access to her by herself. However, Dodgson's infatuation with Alice actually played out in Charlton Kings and beyond. Rumours and mutterings would follow him through life and well into death. In every depiction of Alice's adventures in Wonderland, from the 1951 Disney animation through to Tim Burton's live-action 2010 monstrosity, by way, somehow inevitably, of the 1976 softcore erotic musical comedy Alice in Wonderland, an X-rated musical fantasy, the hint that the original of Alice was more victim than muse persists. At the start of the 1980s, a Cheltenham-based cabbie and wine salesman was suffering these same impulses. He didn't have Dodgson's eccentric genius nor his creative output. He didn't run marathons raising money for children's hospitals or fly world leaders around in a private jet. The longings that he felt didn't have the sterilising distance of history. They were the grubby deviancies of a middle-aged man who kept an index card system based on the girls he could access, either via obscene phone calls or as his behaviours became increasingly serious, by performing sex acts in front of them. This man, this nothing of a man, would have been forgotten entirely by history, relegated to the ignominious annals of minor local sex offenders, had his double life been contained to just his sexual proclivities. But this man had another double life, the rare double-double life, born of an entirely different secret, an even bigger one. Well, I, I was the head of Special Branch, and I'd only been in Special Branch for about 18 months, and prior to that I'd been an operational detective. That's the voice of Peter Pickin, a former police superintendent. Pickin was the leader of Special Branch in Hereford during the 1980s, and became a key part of the team working to uncover the extent of these crimes. It was a Friday afternoon, and I received a phone call from a colleague who was the head of the CID in Herefordshire. And he told me that they had a man in custody called Geoffrey Prime. And he was in custody for some serious sexual offences. And that he'd received a phone call from a solicitor who was a friend of Geoffrey Prime's wife, Rona. And that arrangements were made for... Rona Prime and this solicitor to visit him on the Monday as she was concerned, knowing that her husband had previously worked at GCHQ, that there were items she'd found and 
had concern that maybe he had been involved in activities that he shouldn't have been involved in. And duly on that Monday, they arrived at Hereford Police Station and they handed over what turned out to be three or four little items, but particularly something which is known as a one-time pad. And so these items were sent from Hereford to my office at Hindlip Hall in Worcestershire. And I immediately looked at these items and they, I, I didn't really know what they were. So I made a phone call to the security services because as special branch, that was the contact. And within hours, I had someone from a specialist department in the security services and later someone who I found out to be from GCHQ ring me about these items. It appeared that, yes, Geoffrey Prime had been involved with activities to do with being a, a Russian linguist when he was in the RAF, and then when he left with GCHQ. I suppose I started to think that there might be something in this when the following morning I was told that I would have visitors from London to look at these items and they arrived just after lunchtime and then by the Wednesday morning I found myself with David Cole who was the head of CID and my assistant chief constable in London in a big room talking about what might have gone on with Geoffrey Prime. And all this time, of course, Geoffrey Prime was in custody on weekly remands at Hereford uh, Magistrates Court for the sexual offences. Mm. It became pretty clear that there was a possibility that this was not just a Walter Mitty character, but that he could, in fact, from the items that we had, have been spying. Geoffrey Arthur Prime was born on the 21st of February, 1938, a Monday, and the day that future Prime Minister Anthony Eden resigned as Foreign Secretary due to a disagreement with Neville Chamberlain over Anglo-Italian relations, not, as certain revisionists would later claim, in protest over the appeasement of Nazi Germany. Anyhow, baby Geoffrey was likely unaware of British cabinet politics as he exited his mother, Annie, and took his first shocking breaths in this new world. He was born in Stoke in Staffordshire, a city famous for its pottery. Perhaps the first thing he ever smelt was fired clay from the city's kilns. But more likely it was the primal musk of placental viscera. Prime's childhood was typified by what would later be seen as obvious biographical red flags. His parents had an unhappy marriage, and he was sexually assaulted by an adult family member. But he managed some relative scholastic success in spite of that, particularly as a linguist and by 1956 had joined the RAF. 
giving him an opportunity for reinvention and escape. It was the RAF who taught Prime Russian. That was their first mistake. The second was when he was sent off to Kenya, where he was appalled by the racism of colonial forces in the country. Not to mention the shock of seeing such abject poverty in what was still a British colony. This visit was shortly after the brutal Mau Mau uprising, in which some 20,000 Kenyans were said to have been killed, and two years before Jomo Kenyatta became the first president of an independent Kenya. Around this time, he also developed an interest in communism and started engaging with Marxist radio and literature. Now, I know what you're thinking. This guy sounds like he has an absolutely rock-solid good judgment on the subjects of racism and colonialism. And while Soviet socialism is hardly du jour, it's not a crime to believe that communism might offer a route out of poverty. So was this the real motivation for Prime betraying his country? Or just a confection of his defence team? No, I don't, I don't think it was. I mean, Prime was paid money, but he wasn't paid very much money. That's the voice of Dominic Carmen, a writer and author of No Ordinary Man, A Life of George Carmen, about his father who served as Prime's barrister. He was paid hundreds of pounds at a time over a period of years. So whilst the sums were useful, they were in no way life-changing. Even if one accounts for inflation, it's the equivalent of a few thousand pounds every year. Few people would betray their country for a few thousand pounds. I think it was a useful adjunct to keep him sweet and keep him on side. But clearly he was a man who was convinced he was doing the right thing and spying for the Russians. I mean, if you look back to the experience of others, clearly the Cambridge spy ring, Burgess, Philby, Maclean, and then later Blake, who received a 42-year sentence in the early 1960s, and their whole string of, uh, of individuals who spied for the Russians for ideological reasons because they believed even post-Stalin, that it was a better society and they were aiding you know, the greater cause of socialism. It's very hard to put oneself in the, in the shoes of someone who, who thinks like that, but clearly a number of people did in positions of power and influence where they were able to access secrets, pass on information that were generally useful to the Soviet authorities. And in the case of Jeffrey Prime, that clearly was the case, that the damage that he inflicted, albeit not long-lasting, but at the time that he was doing it in the 1960s and 1970s, was of, of great significance, as reflected by the sentence which he received. Let's leave the subject of Prime's trial and sentencing for now and come back to that in a future episode. With Prime arrested on sexual offences, details of his life as a Soviet mole began to emerge. He had visited West Berlin in the 1960s as a sergeant with the RAF and had immediately hurled from the window of his train an offer to throw his lot in with the USSR against the West. The Soviets, licking their lips at this opportunity that had fallen into their lap, smuggled Prime to a meeting in East Berlin, where it was suggested he might try and find work at GCHQ, the home of British signals intelligence. To their and Prime's surprise, he was almost immediately successful in that endeavour. And so, before the 1960s were out, like the happy-go-lucky passenger messing around in boats with rats, the mole was in place. All these details of Prime's betrayal leaked out over time, as the urgency of keeping the story secret subsided. But even in the early days of his capture, the story was big news. So this is mid-1982. I was working as a general news reporter in the newsroom of The Guardian. That's the voice of Nick Davies 
a veteran Guardian journalist known for uncovering the phone hacking scandal. He's been played by the actor David Thewlis on film. And quite simply, the government, I think the Attorney General's office, announced that they had arrested this man, Geoffrey Prime, in Cheltenham for breaching the Official Secrets Act. So there was, there was a source in the cabinet who told us right there and then on the first day that everybody was extremely alarmed at discovering this spy in this highly sensitive organisation. And I know they said that from the outset, the Attorney General, Sir Michael Havers, would conduct the prosecution himself, which was to indicate the seriousness of the whole thing. I spent a lot of time walking around Cheltenham last summer. It was lockdown and there was little to do other than to use my daily dog walk as an opportunity to stroll past rolls of uniform, whitewashed houses. It was against one of these walls in 2013 that the graffiti artist Banksy painted, if that's the right word, a piece known as Spy Booth, depicting trench-coated surveillance operatives listening in on a telephone booth. An obvious critique of GCHQ, it was scrubbed off in 2016, the fate of most graffiti in Cheltenham. But there is a piece that appeared in 2019, which has survived to the present day, on the side of a building that's home to one of Cheltenham's taxi firms. The main figure of the Geoffrey Prime image is drawn in a style that's meant to be reminiscent of a well-known Banksy image that had been made in the area. That's not the voice of John Doe, a Bristol-based graffiti artist. It's the voice of an actor, reading the words of John Doe, a Bristol-based graffiti artist. It seemed to me that Banksy was deliberately evoking an anachronistic view of spies, cumbersome tape recorders, film noir trench coats and public phone booths, in order to highlight the public's complacency about mass surveillance in the digital age. Whilst they might imagine and fear secret agents ransacking their house, they also freely offer up all their data for the scrutiny of spies sitting safely and discreetly behind a computer in an office. Whilst researching the history of GCHQ, I found out a bit about Geoffrey Prime, and I was surprised to discover that he worked for Cheltax in Cheltenham, which Starline bought in 2006. It turns out that while a taxi driver in Hereford, he was arrested by police after parents complained about a sex pest targeting young girls with predatory behaviour. The piece that I painted on the side of Starline's taxi premises on a cold, damp morning of the 21st of November initially went down well with the public. I'm doubtful that the general public associates the artwork on the Starline Taxis building with Geoffrey Prime, as even the recent stories in the news about him, he isn't an instantly recognisable or relatively well-known figure. More likely, they just associate it with the local Banksy images and the enjoyable story of spies eating Greggs. In fact, shortly after the artwork was complete, I recall that there were some issues being raised with the council about whether the image was advertising, either for Greggs or the taxi company. I spent much of these walks around Cheltenham listening to other people's podcasts, much as I hate to acknowledge their existence. And one of these podcasts was called West Cork, about the murder of a French film producer, Sophie Toscan de Plantier. The show was covering the background of the prime suspect in the case, an Englishman called Ian Bailey, when I heard a reference to the very pavements that I was pounding. I was operating a small freelance agency out of Gloucestershire, out of Cheltenham. That's the voice of Ian Bailey who in the early 1980s was working as a local stringer for national media in the Gloucestershire area. Prime had left GCHQ back in the 70s, late 70s, and started a taxi company in Cheltenham, A to B cabs, I think they were called, with a number of other people. And there'd been a number of assaults on young girls in the Gloucestershire, Herefordshire area, as I recall, the story broke that the details of his car were put into the computer, whatever computers they used in those days. 
And it turned out that the police put him at the scene of one of the assaults. So he was arrested for sexual assault initially. I think he might have come up in the local magistrate's court. At that time, the police had no idea at all what they had accidentally stumbled on. And as I recall, his wife, Rona, was aware of his spying activity. Maybe he had confessed to her that he had been, for a number of years, working for the Soviets, feeding intelligence from GCHQ to the, uh, the Soviets. I think about that line that opens the late Janet Malcolm's book, The Journalist and the Murderer. Every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. Journalists justify their treachery in various ways, according to their temperaments, Malcolm goes on to say. Almost two decades after he was reporting on Jeffrey Prime, Ian Bailey found himself accused of murder. I am not a detective, though like most people who obsessively listen to true crime podcasts, I've always wanted to be one. I don't know if Ian is innocent or guilty, and the internet, my reliable source of overconfident opinions, doesn't seem to know either. But even when talking about Jeffrey Prime's crimes, crimes that have been left deep in the past, without the misery of loose ends, I'm conscious of quite a profound responsibility. Properly recognising tragedy for what it is will always outweigh the need to entertain. And though Ian has a role to play in telling the story of Jeffrey Prime, it will always be superseded by his own story and what became of him in the decades after he left Cheltenham. Obviously, you don't have to you don't have to answer this because it's not particularly relevant. But I, I wondered whether your own experiences with the legal system, with police system, had changed kind of the way you think about how you reported on crime and reported on the courts back in then. Has it changed your perspective at all? Um, no, I don't think so. Particularly, I mean, as, as as you know, I ultimately settled in Ireland, where I still am in the west of Ireland. And uh, about a quarter of a century ago, I was involved in a. a was a big story here at the time, which was uh, a murder of a French national. And I was reporting on that, and then the the Irish police uh, set out to try to frame me for for a crime that I was reporting on. You know, for a quarter of a century, I'm still living in the aftermath of that. But you know, that's that's an, as they say, you know, that's another story. Evil can be a very mundane thing. For the English, there is perhaps no greater sign, or at least no greater sign that could be demarcated on the side of a parcel, of middle-class respectability than a house with a floral name. It's why, of course, Mr and Mrs Dursley, those icons of the obscenities of the petty bourgeois, live at Privet Drive, just off Wisteria Walk and Magnolia Crescent. Laburnum Cottage could have been plucked from the same meadow. It sits on a lane in Cheltenham with... According to Zoopla, an average house price of £350,000, just a stone's throw from the stuccoed and storied properties that sprung up in service to the fad around the Pitville pump room in the 19th century. It's the sort of place you'd expect two retired teachers to live, with their cocker spaniel, Biggles. And it was here that Geoffrey Prime and his wife Rona were living at the time of his arrest. Out of morbid curiosity... The same morbid curiosity that makes us fetishise serial killers and listen to true crime podcasts. I found Laburnum Cottage on Google Maps and decided to drive over with my partner Anna to have a look. Well, I knew that the Primes lived on Pitville Crescent Lane in a little house that's called Laburnum Cottage and, you know, it all sounded so sweet. And so I drove down here and 
didn't know which one would be it because it doesn't show up on Google Maps or anything like that. And the house I've just pulled up next to, what does it say? The Burnham Cottage. And it's, you know, just a little kind of wooden clad house. And it's really kind of sweet looking. The last place on earth you'd expect to, to find a spy or, you know, find anything weird going on. And the whole the whole road is just sleepy kind of bungalows and we're in we're only a stone's throw away from uh, Pitville Park, which is where you get the spa water out of the pump room, kind of the the heart of Regency Cheltenham. And here you can just see people out with their dogs. You can hear my dog panting in the back of the car, hyperventilating, <laughs> exaggerating. But yeah, it's kind of kind of strange to see somewhere so so normal. Yeah, this is where at the start of the nineteen eighties the most the most amazing story in British signal intelligence was was unfolding in the attic of Laburnum Cottage and now it's just I don't know you know real people do live there I assume so yeah are you really going to say the address I'm not going to I'm not going to well I don't know it's a matter of public record isn't it I know I just feel I feel kind of bad for the ordinary people it's just it doesn't even show up on Google Maps Laburnum Cottage I know but you said the lane and the name of the house okay well maybe I'll bleep it out but I mean what kind of podcast is this it's all getting a bit ghoulish. I don't know. It's um, it's an important moment in history, isn't it? It's like um, if we're driving around near us, you see those blue plaques in uh, all over London. You know, you don't think, oh, it's ghoulish that you know Dan Leno lived in that house or you know Keats lived here, do you? <laughs> I know, but maybe it's because it's not so recent, and also there's something more known historically about it that makes it feel. I don't know. Just now we've pulled up, and I can just see that it's a normal house and probably a very normal family living it just all with i feel a bit like a like a vulture or something is it the least vulturey where you can do true crime is it true <laughs> crime anyway that's laburnum cottage let's 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 go on I, you you've made me feel bad about it you made me feel bad about <laughs> so. it so you're mission accomplished look at that sweet dog it's hard to imagine the crushing weight of carrying just one of Prime's secrets, let alone the double, double life he was living. Did one secret make the other easier? Had a lifetime of hiding his interest in young girls inured Prime to the moral burden of deception? By the time he was moonlighting for the Soviets, was he simply too far gone? Had he lived too long as the man he was not, by nature, born to be? Some people call lying the oldest of human traits. Certainly, it's as ingrained in our psyches as truth-telling. After all, what is truth without lies? What would be fact without fiction? It's a dichotomy that goes back to a slithery little fella in a garden in what's modern-day Iraq, near the city of Basra, the first stop for British and American troops during the 2003 invasion, coincidentally. So the moment in the Garden of Eden is important, especially in the European tradition, because until really sometime in the 1700s, everybody essentially imagines lying as a religious problem. That's the voice of Dallas G. Deanery II, a professor of history at Bowdoin College in Maine, and the author of The Devil Wins, A History of Lying from the Garden of Eden to the Enlightenment. Right, it's, it's a theological problem. And so when people talk about lying, it's always within this religious framework about the believer's relationship to God. And then in the 1700s, for a variety of reasons, we see this sort of fade away and lying becomes more of a natural problem. And so... Today, we all just think like lying is something human beings do, and it's either good or bad. Before the 1700s, it was bad, <laughs> and it was a sign of a real sort of religious 
sinful nature of things. Do you think society has evolved to its ever-increasing amount of deception, whether it's self-deception, whether it's projecting, and here I'm thinking to some extent about the internet and the depersonalization of people and whether it facilitates lying and whether it facilitates a sort of reimagination of the self. Do you think we're on a never-ending journey towards more and more detachment from the honest moral truth? I guess there's two things I can tell you. The first one is the typical historian's answer that you probably well, thanks for nothing, which is there has never been a moment in history where people have not thought lying was out of control to degrees never seen before. So in the 1100s, there are courtiers who are saying no one has ever lied as much as they do today. You see it in the 1500s. So I always take that with a grain of like it's easy to catastrophize our situation. But, you know, you said something really interesting, too. Lying is possible. We can lie because there's a distinction between our thoughts and how we present ourselves, right? That gap is necessary in order to deceive people. And so it's an interesting question as technology develops and increases the levels of mediation between what you're thinking and what people see from you, if that sort of increasing distance enabled through technology makes it easier to lie and makes lying more widespread. And, and that's, I think, a serious possibility because the technology itself exacerbates the condition that makes lying possible in the first place. It struck me whilst making this podcast, because in part podcasts are such a tapestry of different voices, that I've never heard Prime speak, and probably never will. If there are tapes of police interviews, then they're locked away and subject to all sorts of secrecy limitations. His role in history is a voiceless one. And again, perhaps it's the podcaster in me speaking, but not hearing Prime's voice only further reinforces the fact that, for all the books written about his case, for all that you can rustle up from slightly dodgy pro or anti-intelligence service websites, he's still a fundamentally unknowable character, an enigma. Even those I've spoken to who knew him somewhat in life, like a former colleague of his at the taxi company, say he was reserved to the point of aloofness. The only image that remains is him in handcuffs. Going back to that first time you laid eyes on Prime, probably before, well before you knew the full scale of the, of the case against him, what were your impressions of him as a man? Um, very... Insular, I suppose. He was a, I think it could, fair to say, was was a bit of a loner. And um, I remember that the first time I met him was he was on remand and in Gloucester Prison. And I went there to to see him as an initial sort of interview. And he initially was not prepared to, to speak to me because he'd been working with secrets of our country and that uh, I wasn't a person he would be able to do, to talk about any secrets. And it wasn't until I was able to show and prove to him that I had been positively vetted and I had the authority and the right to talk about these matters. But he was obviously a very intelligent man and right from the beginning, he had obviously spent a lot of time thinking about what we might know. 
I've spoken to various people who reported on the case at the time and that sort of thing, and almost everyone describes Prime as like singularly unlikable, someone without any redeeming qualities. I mean, what what did you do? You think he was a sort of one of life's bad characters, or was there is there more to him? I I do remember he said at the end of the statement he he said something like, "Looking back over the entire period, I deeply regret." the extent of my betrayal by my activities, which were in breach of trust placed on me by the government. He said it was really a misplaced, idealistic view of the Soviet socialism. I mean, I think as a young man, he had started to look at life and think that Soviet socialism was a better option than the, dare I say, the capitalistic um, society we have. I think in particular because he, there is no doubt that having met Rona Prime, who had three boys from her first marriage, he did have great affection for, for both Rona and for the boys, but he was already completely steeped in, um, in espionage. Russians for 10 years. Yes. Did you watch Kitty Parm videos with Stephen Cage? Yes. Would you like a neat way to wrap this episode up? The 1986 Michael Caine movie, The Whistleblower, the first spy thriller to be set at GCHQ and responsible to some extent for familiarising the general public with the organisation's work, opens with a character being interrogated after his cover as a Soviet mole at GCHQ is blown. Did you watch kiddie porn videos, the man is asked. In 1986, with the prime trial fresh in the public memory, the illusion would have been clear. GCHQ had a famous mole and a famous paedophile, and they were one and the same. But this thinly veiled version of Prime went by a different name in The Whistleblower. Like Lewis Carroll before he was Lewis Carroll, he was called Dodgson. With the arrest of Prime, the town of Cheltenham realised that it could offer refuge to something almost unthinkable. It was a Stepford Wives moment, behind the neat hedgerows and estate cars parked on private driveways, behind the smiling faces of overloved children, their well-quaffed mothers and stony-faced professional fathers. There was an unknowable void, a void that could be filled with anything, a void that for Prime was filled with personal and professional deviance. But right now we've only peeked behind Geoffrey Prime's curtain. Over the coming weeks it will be blown wide open and with it, GCHQ's veil of secrecy too. But next week, it's time to solve a different and very special puzzle. This has been the third episode of The Town That Knew Too Much, written, produced and presented by me, Nick Hilton. The music is by George Jennings, based on the planets by Gustav Holst. The entire score for the series is available to stream on Spotify. Voice acting on this episode of the podcast was provided by Evelyn Lockley, and Keith Gwynn. This is the third part of a seven-part series available on all good podcast platforms. You can find out more about the show on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Just go to at the town pod or visit www.thetownpod.com for episode notes and more information. If you've enjoyed the show, please go to your podcast provider and leave a rating and review. And do go onto Instagram and talk about the show so that other people can find it. And tag me at Nick underscore Hilton if you're saying something nice. I'd like to see that. The Town That Knew Too Much is a Podo podcast. For more information, visit podopods.com.